Welcome to the Nia Jaichuan Podcast. My name is Isaac Kamins. This is a bi-weekly podcast where my friend Jess O'Brien and I discuss internal martial arts, qigong, and meditation. This week we continue to talk about uh, Master Zhang Zhaodong. We take a look at an article from uh, Tim Cartmel's website by one of uh, Zhang's students, Zhao Daojin, uh, where he talks about his views on martial arts and uh, internal martial arts and external martial arts and everything in between. Uh, so this one goes a little long, and then there's a bit at the end where Jess does some uh, opening-closing stuff, sort of continuing from the last episode. If you didn't hear the intro to the Nagong part, you want to might want to go back to the last episode and listen to that first because it'll make a little more sense. Uh, okay, hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks for listening and take care. I think the next thing we wanted to look at was one of Zong's students wrote an article or there was an interview with one of Zong's students, a guy by the name of Zhao Daoxin. And so we wanted to pull a few quotes from that article just to give a sense of what training was like with Master Zong. So Master Zhao, I don't know much about him. He's clearly a younger generation. So he would have been that same age generation as Leo Hong Jae probably from, you know, born at the turn of the century or maybe even later because Zhang Zhaodong lives till 1940. So this guy could conceivably have been born as late as 1920 or something like that. I mean, the only dating I can give you is from the pictures and there are pictures of uh, Zhang Zhaodong as an probably 60-ish year old man with Zhao and Zhao is maybe in his early 40s something like that so he was that second generation probably after han musha right so han musha was his first generation of mm-hmm. students I okay think, so this know. would be this guy would be probably one generation younger than leo hong jay then but he sounds like a very ornery uh crusty old hardcore martial arts i dude, mean yeah i love he it. starts off just ripping on on modern wushu yeah you know, it's like everyone complains that modern wushu is just flowering forms, but that doesn't mean that they themselves possess true gong fu. So he, he's as critical of modern wushu as he is of traditional. He says the wushu from the modern institutes neglects the fighting side, while the traditional wushu, they just talk about fighting. It doesn't mean they really got it. So he says, I don't know if either modern wushu or traditional could prove their, their abilities in fighting on an international stage. And so his interviewer says, but in, but in the old times, foreign fighting experts and strongmen kept coming to China. Chinese masters of that generation defeated them many times. And then Zhao just cuts him off. <laughs> if there's so many examples of Chinese masters defeating foreigners, why do we only hear about it from our side? And the foreigners never mention us. Maybe mm. they don't want to talk about being defeated. But on the other side, how many Chinese were defeated? We don't talk about that because it would be humiliating. Anyways, we don't know what were the proportions between victories and defeats. Right. It's like I always say, you know, nobody ever talks about the fights where they lose. <laughs> right. <you know>? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And what kind of opponents were these foreigners who were defeated by our masters? My teacher, Zhang Zhaodong, he fought a Russian strongman. I met a Danish boxer. Other friends had similar situations. That's the first time I've heard of a Dane uh, going on a fighting tour. But everyone was in on it. Like, it sounds like it was a real business model. You know, you send your boxers and wrestlers to China to fight. He said, but our opponents were defeated after just one action. It wasn't a real fight. And this was only because traditional Chinese martial arts don't meet again fight against real tigers. In those times, you could easily become famous by defeating some foreigner, but it was only because there there weren't any real experts. Mm. Mm. So yeah, he's saying a lot of these fights were fixed. I could, yeah. uh, I could see that. 
You know, maybe some of these were real matches with real badasses on both sides, but it well, just all depends. Right. And that's why one perspective, it's sort of like people used to send their guys to China to fight because that's where there was a place to fight. Like it was, oh, the, you know, there was, was a, money to be made. There was money to be made and there was a, you know, an existing apparatus to do it. Right. Sort of like in the West, you know, it took a long time before boxing was, you know, something you could do that was organized. Right. Mm. Um, and so I, I think, imagine boxing is getting going right around this time period, like John Sullivan. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guys that Frank exactly. Allen always talks right. about. So, so there's this organized sporting sports movement happening all over the world. And if you want the fighting sports, the best place to do it back then was China. Sure. In the seventies, you know, it was, it was Japan. You could go to Japan mm. and you could compete in karate in tournaments, karate yeah. tournaments. And right. I mean, you know, one thing is you always find an audience in Asia for fighting sports, you know, right. anywhere in Asia you go. Yeah. There's plenty of people who want to watch a fight. Like not to get off topic too much, but it also always, it's always going to follow the money. Right. So mm. where, so where do people go now to fight? They go to the, you know, the United States because that's where the UFC is. And that's where you can make the absolute most money fighting anywhere in the world. So one other thing he mentions here is kind of cool. More challenging was fighting with other Chinese at that time. No foreigners signed up for the Lei Tai tournaments in Hangzhou or Shanghai. And the people from traditional styles, no matter if they were some monk or a great master famous in some place, they either became injured in fights or were not brave enough to fight. And the winners, although they signed up as representatives of some traditional systems, instead of forms and other methods of these systems, they were using completely different methods preparing for fighting. The best fighters are the ones who you never see because they're competing in tournaments that happen where there are no cameras and the purse is pretty low and it's just about the underground fighting sport of it, right? Yeah, he's saying there was a lot of a lot of fighting going on between Chinese, and that's where yeah, the best because there's always been I mean, all over the world. It doesn't matter where you are. There's there's people that will pay other people to fight, and that's a you know, they'll pay them a lot of money to do it if the rules are pretty loose. So this was, again, just to go back to this thing, it was like, that's why it was, it was there. It was because it was like that they had the, they had the rings, they had the money, they had the yep. audience. All Every Friday them. night or whatever, it's, it's always happening. So there's always a need for more and, and, and again, you know, the, the, the spectacle of, you know, if you got a big, you know russian german guy up there or whatever like that's going to excite the crowd but i think what this guy is saying is that the you know the the better martial artists would fight each other because they mm-hmm. were more into the fighting you know, part of it not the right. spectacle money making right. part of it so he goes on to uh keep shooting down people's myths and fantasies about uh <laughs> about it. the martial arts and he says uh He begins by completely rejecting the internal or external division of Chinese martial arts. It doesn't mean there's no meaning to it at all, but they only partially describe ways of demonstration. They don't really say anything about the way of fighting. Divisions in martial arts should be based on effectiveness in fighting, not the way of practice. They should express human body in developing technique and not sect-like customs nourished for hundreds and thousands of years. Um, That's all from the past. And the internal external division was made up by literati fascinated by the style which they practiced. So they calling it they started calling it internal family art. Skillful writers created flowery descriptions. But in fact, nobody would talk about himself being representative of an external family art. In fact, in real fighting, there's no style. So he's saying internal and external describes the way you practice, but it doesn't describe the way you fight. 
which I think makes sense to me because yeah, the practice is just making you what you are. But when you go to fight, it's not the style doing the fighting, right? Right. I mean, I, I like Bruce's description of it is, you know, the, the race car drivers. It's like you can take the worst driver in the world, put him in the best car and the best driver in the world, put him in the worst car. The best driver is still going to win because if you can't start the car, you don't know how to shift gears very well. Mm. Like you're not going to go very far. So right. you know, it's the skill of the individual vastly outweighs the, um, you know, the vehicle. Now there are, you know, there are martial arts. I think, you know, there are better martial arts and worse martial arts, if you will, but that makes a very small distinction at the end of the day, a good fighter. That's the person, the stylistic way they fight. That's the martial art that they do, you know, but right. good fighters are hard to find in any field. So, you know, if you find one, they tend to be revered. He goes on to talk about, uh, the interviewer asks, so what are the shortcomings of Chinese martial arts if we're talking about the way of fighting? Oh, and so Zhao, you can just see him rubbing his hands Oh, boy. Um, so anyways, you know, he, he critiques uh, how everyone sort of complains. That's not real, Bagor. That's not real, Tai Chi. Um, he's like, the, the differences between stars are more in ritual gestures and in the way of fighting. And the gestures are only useful for demonstrating or meeting others and fighting. They're useless and stupid. And then another uh, taboo he rips on is that of falling down. Um, He says, you know, in Chinese challenges, there's an unwritten rule that touching the ground with a part of the body other than your feet means you've been defeated. Um, So the idea is if you knock the other person and they stumble and fall, that's that's a win. He's like, that's not enough to win. You know, he's like, you've got to be able to really beat the guy up if you truly want to win. Um, so, you know, he critiques that the worship of old masters is being a little overblown. And he's like, if the old master's legs aren't good and he doesn't kick anymore, then you'll never learn to kick. And I think, you know, he makes a good point there. You're like, you can't do base yourself exactly on your teacher. They're just maybe at a different stage of life. Follow their instructions, but not necessarily their exact movement. And this, this is what I was saying earlier about that people, if you're learning from an old guy, right? You're not going to learn all of it from an old guy. You're going to learn the quote unquote internal part and the philosophy part and the, you know, finer points of it, if you will, but you're going to need to find what they would refer to as a young master out there who can still kick, you know, or, or kick ass, right. And uh, do all of the physical stuff to show you the physical stuff, right. Or Mm. it's just not going to happen like right ideally you'd get both someone to train with hand to hand and someone who can give you the finer points sort of coach you up all these guys we've talked about right Mm. basically what they do is they either start out with one guy who you know teaches them the basic movements and the forms and then they go to the you know grandmaster if you will Mm -hmm. or if they get real lucky they meet the grandmaster first like Zhang Zhaodong meets Dong Hai Chuan Mm. and then you know the grandmaster dies and they end up, you know, spending most of the time with the the young master after that. But, but nobody's going to learn, you know, the, I mean, very rarely is a 80 or something, you know, 70, 80 year old person going to want to spend the time to teach you how to move. Right. I'm not going to get into it, but you know, 
if you're going to a grandmaster and you can't already do everything, you shouldn't be going there. You should learn it first and then go to the guy who can fill in the gaps for you. So I think part of what this guy is saying is just, you know, this idea that you can just go bow to some old dude and, you know, that's, that's that, you know, now you're a fucking, you know, master yourself. That doesn't happen. You know, you have to actually do the training along the way somewhere. And so, you know, uh, I like this. I like his attitude. Yeah, Zhao is like keeping it super real. Yeah. And I have a feeling this comes from Master Zong Zhao Dong. This is the philosophy and approach that Master Zong took of no bullshit. You know, most of what I've read or you know seen from his students is there is almost always a very direct kind of attitude of you know like don't you know, like fuck around with all this flowery stuff. Like just right. get, you know get to the. And I think that comes from the fact that he was at his core you know even before he did bagua he was a shingy guy and so he had he had that you know sort of thing of uh, you know it it doesn't have to look pretty to work well right and in your when you're in the security business as a quote thief catcher like your number one goal is capturing violent criminals you know yeah you've got a pretty you know harsh attitude at that point you can't really it's not for fun yeah that's a much more impressive i think resume than a uh i beat up a foreign guy once right 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 so one more thing from Zhao here he's all you know i don't care about what style is what the problem is lack of actual fight training in which traditional school is the most time spent on fight training traditional teachers make a bunch of mistakes they say you can only teach fighting at the end of the training process that only when you have Gong Li, you then you can start testing it in a fight. Then secondly, they say when you become proficient in Tui Show and other exercises which a partner with a partner that resemble fighting, it means you've developed fighting skill. Neither of these things are true. Of course, it is difficult to introduce hard fighting during training. Nobody wants to go to work the next day with a swollen face and a bruised leg. <laughs> but if you want to achieve high level in martial arts, you must. Yep. <laughs> so he's just like, no, you have to get beat up. There's no other way. Yeah, I mean, and, you, know, you know, I hate to say it, there's no getting around. Now, you don't have to get beat up bad, but, right. you know, you got to get bopped around a little bit at some point. The amount that you're willing to engage, let's just say, with uh, the smash and bash is going to directly relate to how good you are at it, right? So, um I don't think you have to go to the level of turning your face into hamburger to get the, you know, sense, right. the, the sense of what it's like to get punched in the face. But if you never get punched in the face, the first time it happens, you're going to freak the fuck out. Uh, Bruce's line about, you know, spar till you, you win more than you lose. Right. That, that uh, if you get hit in the face enough, thrown on the ground enough kicked enough like you stop being afraid of it and it's not going to freak you out if it happens right like you're saying it's kind of you know how he always talks about you know relaxing your nervous system learning how to experience intense feelings and emotions without freaking out well as we as you and i have often pointed out like when you get punched that lights up all those emotions and all those scary things right you know and that's when your nagong gets tested that's and i think for a lot of people that's it's not needed you don't need to get beat up but you do need to be tested somehow you need to be shocked you need to be you know, scared that, that's when your skill as a martial artist really is tested right it's not it's not when you win it's when things mm. don't go your way and 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 you start getting this you know the stuffing kicked out of you and 
that's when it's like, okay, I have to learn from this and not just throw a tantrum. Right. Right. Uh, and, and if you're winning, you have to realize like, okay, I don't have to hurt this person to finish the job, if you will. Um, because there's a world of difference between punching somebody in the face and making your point known and getting on top of them and pounding them until their cheek is broken, you know, like, because the second one is going to a level of you're trying to hurt them beyond, you know, the, the competition, right? You want, you want to inflict lasting damage on this person. And I think that's the, to me, the dividing line between martial arts and, you know, if you will, fighting combat is in combat, you are trying to inflict enough damage on someone that they can't come after you in, you know, sports in fight, you know, martial arts, you're only trying to prove that you're better at martial arts than they are. Right. That's so, so the, the prove ego, that your, your movements work, you know, prove it to yourself, yeah. not them. And, you know? and, and the ego part of it, I think is where, you know, Ooh. that that's why there are referees because at a certain point, someone needs to say, okay, that's enough. You've proven your point, right. Like, and pull you off the guy. Um, and in fights where there isn't that, you know, that's when people really get hurt. And, and, you know, I, you know, I, I, you know, if you're going to fight on that level, join the army, uh, go to somewhere where there are wars in the world and, you know, you'll find people that want to do that with you. You don't need right. to take it to that level. Right? You don't There's to, only a few who need to go that far. You don't need to inflict that on your, you know, your, your relatives and your uh, you know, your friends like that's, you know, so as one of the, just one more day that, that, you know, this, this idea of, uh, martial arts versus sports versus fighting, you know, those, those, I think what he's saying is, you know, that martial arts for, uh, the sake of, you know, tradition, right. Aren't the same as martial arts for real fighting. And it's, you know, you should know the difference. And furthermore, I like I'd like to reflect on what you were saying about like when you're winning, everything's great and it's cool. But when you're under pressure and you're losing, suddenly that's testing your mind. It's testing your emotions. It's testing your energy. It's testing your it's testing all of the different things that you work on in Nagong. And I think to me, you don't have to test those things in fighting necessarily, but you've got to test them somehow. Well, because if you just if you just do Nagong and you win every time. You, you don't know if you're really building anything inside right. you. So you've got to push against a wall. I don't know. Find this, a way to something to resist you. you know? This is the this is the investing in loss, right? You know, if you always fight people who are smaller and weaker and not as skilled as you, you'll win most of the time. But you don't actually learn that much from it. Where if you're fighting people that who are better than you and they are pushing your limits, you start kind of finding things out that you didn't know about and you get better from it and yeah, this better. this is not unique to martial arts this happens with musicians this happens with sports people this happens with everybody if you get to if you have an art and you want to get better at that art go hang out with people who've been doing it longer than you a teacher in one sense is just somebody who's been doing the thing that you want to do longer than you've been doing it you know and uh sort of like i don't know there isn't a magic formula to it it's just keep practicing it you know and you'll get better at it so uh if you want to get better at fighting you have to fight if you want to get better at martial arts you got to do martial arts right i think that's a lot of truth to be found in there and, and a lot of room for debate 
Moving on to the Nagong practice portion of today's podcast, we'll start with an exercise from the Marriage of Heaven and Earth Qigong, the uh, opening and closing of the wrist joint. So the way I like to do it is you just settle down, sit down or stand in a spot. And I'll start by, by working with uh, my right hand. So, you know, to, to really get the joint moving, you kind of want to isolate it in space so that you're not, your arm's not wiggling all over the place. You kind of got to ground it so that then you have a direction from which to do your opening and closing. Um, so just start by grabbing your, use your left hand to grab, grab your forearm below your wrist. So right up by your wrist, your right wrist, just grip that with your hand gently so that you sort of hold your arm in place. And okay, and then now what you wanna do is you want the wrist to itself to do as much of the work as possible. So you don't wanna be flexing your arm a bunch or, or tightly squeezing your hand or stretching your fingers out really hard or anything like that. You wanna get your mind to kind of, kind of narrow itself down and, and pinpoint its focus as deeply into the wrist as you can. So looking at your wrist, you see that sort of wrinkly skin there at the base of the hand. So you take your mind and you get, get yourself seated in there a little bit. Once you sort of get your mind in there, start to feel the base of the hand and where it connects to the bone of the arm. And let, just let your mind squish around in there a little bit. You can, I sort of, sometimes I'll sort of like rotate my wrist a little bit or just sort of jiggle it slightly so I can, that helps me center my mind in that spot. Now, what you first do is you use your vision to aid you. You look at that wrinkly skin in your hand. And now let that, let that tissue soften and relax and sort of fall into itself so that the wrinkles bunch up ever so slightly as the hand comes closer to the arm. And you just let your hand sort of sink into the arm. Now, there's, there's no way to do it but to do it. But you, use, you envision the idea of, like, say, a balloon that's losing some air. And then your hand it comes in towards the wrist at that same sort of sense of collapsing in on itself and, and gently doing what we call closing. And those wrinkles should get more wrinkly when you do that. Now you want to open that joint. So, again, you look at that wrinkly skin and you take the hand and you let the hand expand like a balloon and grow away from the arm. And you can let your, your, your fingertips open a little bit, let the palm open a little bit. That, that'll help you get the idea. And the, the skin of the wrist stretches open and the wrinkles become less wrinkly. And that's how you can see visually if something's happening in there. And there's a small movement as the hand grows away from the forearm and grows sort of longer. So that's the same action that you repeat over and over. Once you've grown that wrist as, and sort of expanded that balloon as much as you can, now you start letting air out of the balloon again. And it slowly sinks, seats back into the forearm, and those wrinkles get deeper and sort of bunched up a little bit as the hand closes in on itself. Now, again, maybe your arm moves a little bit, your hands move a little bit. That's okay. You just want to get the idea. But over time... Make that as small as, you know, narrow your focus as much as you can until the joint itself is your, is your whole focus. And there's less and less muscular action driving that opening and closing. So once you let the hand expand again and grow away from the, from the arm, you'll see the skin stretches out and becomes smoother again. And right when you hit the peak, you can kind of get a little bit of a rhythm going. Once it grows to its maximum and it sort of wants to shrink back, just let the balloon 
lose a little air and it sinks into itself and there's sort of a heaviness that comes with that and when that shrinks down to its maximum let it go the other way again now you add a little awareness you add a little air to the balloon and the hand grows out of the socket of the wrist and the skin smooths out in the wrist and you'll know when you get to something of a maximum let it just drift back and start to close again and once you've done about 10 repetitions of letting it gently expand and grow to its maximum slowly but surely and then slowly close the balloon lets some air out and the wrist sinks back into itself. So once you do about 10 of those, go ahead and switch sides and do it on the other side. And things to watch out for are a lot of movement in the arm itself. You wanna go ahead and isolate that arm because if you move the arm and the wrist at the same time, you're not getting the benefit of really, of just sort of, you're, sh you're shutting down all your system except that wrist. So it's an example of breaking up the exercise and then later you combine you know, all the joints together in various ways. But for now, you're, you're limiting yourself just as much as you can to this wrist and getting it used to opening and closing. And once it really gets that in it, it'll start to do that as you do all your practices and to more or less degree. Um, but so really isolate the arm, hold the wrist firmly so that you're, you're not pushing your your arm out instead of letting the wrist do its thing you know keep the hand pretty relaxed and like i said you can let the hand the fingers stretch out if you want and then later you'll get to pulsing the palm itself and the fingers and the joints of the fingers but for now just use the hand as just one big mass and let it it's a bit of an anchor that pulls away from the joint and so let the heaviness of that hand sort of open the joint and help pull away from it by its own weight and then similarly sink back into the wrist. Um, but there's no action of the hand technically needed to get that wrist pulsation going. And once you've got, you know, got that feeling, go ahead and switch to the other side and take some time to pulse that one. And then you'll be ready to start transferring that work to the other joints of the body. Hey folks, Isaac here. Um, just a quick uh, announcement. We have a Patreon only episode coming out uh, probably next week on Tan Shu Fasher, who was Leo Hong Jay's Buddhist meditation teacher. Uh, so check that out. Also check out the Instagram. There'll be some images up there. And if you got time to drop us a review on iTunes, it would be greatly appreciated. All right. Uh, take care and thanks for listening.